welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360. I'm Duncan Wood, Vice President of Strategy and New Initiatives and Senior Advisor to the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, and your host for this episode, uh, replacing temporarily the inimitable John Maluski. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration amongst uh, the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin America Program, and Mexico Institute. July 1st, 2021 marks the first year anniversary of the entry into force of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, the USMCA. The first year of its implementation was largely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic shockwaves it sent throughout the region and the world. Though the pandemic made the implementation of the agreement more difficult than originally hoped, it also reinforced the importance of North America as an economic bloc and regional partner. As we near the agreement's one-year anniversary, economic activity is returning to normal in North America, and trade between the United States, Mexico, and Canada is returning to pre-pandemic levels. Joining our roundtable today is Ambassador Earl Anthony Wayne. Ambassador Wayne is a retired career ambassador, a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center, and co-chair of the Mexico Institute Advisory Board, and most importantly, a good friend to all of us here on this, on this show. Ambassador Wayne, welcome to America's 360. Thank you. Also joining our roundtable today are our regulars, Latin American Program Director Cindy Aronson, Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan, Slater Family Fellow and Senior Associate for the Brazil Institute, Anya Prusa, Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman, and Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Ambassador Wayne, let's begin with a, uh, a brief overview from you about how you see this first year under USMCA, how it went, what it's shown us about the North American partnership. Over to you. Thank you very much, Duncan. Well, first, as you mentioned, the pandemic gave everybody a trial by fire right away. Um, it was a lot harder to implement all the new commitments in USMCA. Uh, one example of that is a, a very complicated thing called rules of origin, which is basically is something qualified for duty-free treatment and especially cars. And, and it made it a lot harder to apply that because the border was closed, uh, manufacturing was closed down or greatly uh, altered, and people just were trying to figure out how to keep things going. And one of the things we learned right away is that there wasn't an understanding of what were important supply chains and who was connected to whom. And we discovered that people were interconnected all across North America. And so there had to be a lot of adjustment in talking through what was essential, what was important, how can we keep these things going. And people started talking about resilient supply chains, which we had not talked much about before. So all of this demanded patience adaptability by people and creative thinking. And we saw a lot of this going forward. Everything didn't work out perfectly, but people worked through problems and they showed a lot of adaptability. Um, what this meant was that USMCA's implementation was slowed down. A lot of it took place by Zoom and, and not in person, that the people who normally would have gone back and forth across the border and between manufacturing plants and between capitals couldn't do that. Um, so 
we had a much slower pace of implementation. And then you had the transition in the United States, a new administration coming in. So the Trump team uh, slowed down what they were doing at the end of their of their term. And the Biden team has taken a while to get everybody in place and up and running. But we should now be set at one year uh, to really get into a higher gear and to move forward with all these new mechanisms. Now, some of the innovations were especially in the labor area, looking at union democracy and union rights. Um, some of them had to do with all the, a range of new committees, for example, small and medium enterprises involve those smaller exporters in trade across North America. And there's a really interesting new committee called the Competitiveness Committee, which is supposed to look at how all three countries, all three economies, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, can actually be more competitive in the world vis-a-vis -vis China and vis-a-vis -vis others. So there's a whole bunch to do now going forward in addition to solving problems as they arrive. And it's not surprising that across North America, there are disputes and differences that come up. Uh, we trade over a, a million dollars a minute across both borders. So there's a lot of activity going on. And as we celebrate one year, uh, we're going to see that shift into a higher gear. Thanks, Tony. So a uh, quick question for you that you weren't prepared for. Uh, out of 10, what would you give the performance of the, uh, of the USMCA after one year? Well, I'd probably give it a uh, six to seven in that people did a really good job of adapting to the changes. And even though things were slower and it was, it was hard to work together, they still kept momentum moving forward. And that includes even a couple of cases that were filed in the, in the labor area of complaints. And Canada just filed a case against the United States on solar panels. So they were working on those, those, some of those contentious things. And at the same time, they were starting to look forward. Uh, for example, even in the labor area, the United States has offered to bribe, provide more technical assistance to Mexico as it moves forward with these very ambitious labor reforms that are going to be essential in the Mexican economy, but also essential for the smooth functioning of USMCA. So, Andrew, if I can turn to you, let's bring in, in fact, all of our regular uh, discussants panelists into this conversation right now. You just heard Tony say that uh, he gives it a six to seven out of 10 for the first year. Um, you know, Tony is a, is a famously tough grader. That's what his students at American University tell me. Would you, uh, would you concur with that? And, uh, you know, how would you evaluate the, uh, the performance after one year? Yeah, Duncan, thank you. I, I think six to seven is probably fair. I, I think you have to give all three countries a few points just for the pandemic, for, for having to deal with the pandemic. As as Tony pointed out, it just all the things that would have happened face to face had to happen over Zoom. I, I, I always struggle with the question of, of how good is USMCA or how well is it working? Uh, because maybe I, I'm troubled to some extent or can't get over the fact that USMCA was the first U.S. trade agreement that ever uh, restricted trade rather than expanding trade. So um, I, it's just, a, in my mind, it's a different calculation. Uh, that being said, USMCA provides some clarity, some some rules and, and regulations for parts of the economy that didn't exist in, in 1992 when the agreement was negotiated. So I think the fact that there are rules for things like digital trade is extremely important. And, uh, you know, we should 
we should appreciate that that's there. And maybe part of the answer on the grade is we still have to see maybe maybe a year past the pandemic, we'll have a better sense of how well is it working or how much different is it than, than USMCA. In terms of conflicts that have arisen, Andrew, I mean, what do you see as the most important ones that have come up so far? Well, you know, without a doubt, the ones, at least thinking about it from the Mexico-U.S. perspective, the, the question of whether uh, the latest efforts to, to reform Mexico's 2013 energy reform, whether those uh, are consistent with USMCA or not, is probably the biggest, uh, the biggest third rail, so to speak, of conflict between the countries. Uh, the other one I would put in, uh, Tony mentioned the labor enforcement mechanism. I think there was always a concern in Mexico that that mechanism would be used as a backdoor way to impose restrictions on trade. I think so far it appears to be being used as intended to correct violations of, of labor law and labor treatment. But I, I think if if number of cases proliferate and they start to appear to be targeted, that too could be a problem. Chris, the uh, turning to you from a Canadian perspective, Canada, the ultimate good neighbor, but Canada and the United States and, and now Canada and Mexico don't exactly have an untroubled relationship when it comes to trade. How would you, uh, how would you uh, evaluate where the conflict has, has been in USMCA in its first year? Well, um, thank you for not asking me to grade it. I'm, I'm not sure I have the toughness of either Andrew or Ambassador Wayne. Um, I, I think what's interesting from a can, the Canadian-U.S. perspective is that Canada, being a smaller partner, has always tried to bring as many of its conflicts into uh, a kind of rule of law, a structure. And if you contrast the kind of disputes we're having within USMCA, there's a dispute over um, dairy, there's a dispute over softwood lumber. Those are those are familiar disputes. There is a process. We're going to see if this agreement uh, will bring resolution. Uh, Andrew mentioned solar panels, or no, I think actually Ambassador Wayne did. But then look at some of the disputes that are outside. Um, we had the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, which... Uh, needs a presidential permit, which had been denied by the Obama administration, granted by the Trump administration, and then canceled by the Biden administration, a process in executive orders that provides no means for appeal for the Canadians. And now Ontario and Quebec are heading into the fall and winter worried about line five, the Enbridge line that is supposed to be expanded, but Michigan has tried to shut that off. Now that's another dispute that doesn't fall under USMCA. And so for Canada, the overall relationship, very much a mixed grade, but the promise of USMCA SMCA is the rules-based order where they can adjudicate, negotiate, and litigate disputes. That that could really be a big improvement for Canada. And it's, to me, an incomplete to see where we go. But I think the contrast between the things that are in USMCA and not shows the advantage uh, and the benefit of having taken a chance to try to update our trade agreements. Thank you, Chris. A, a lot of folks uh, uh, here in Washington are saying that USMCA provides a model for future trade agreements that the United States will uh, will negotiate out in the world. And uh, you know, one of the uh, the things that uh, a lot of people are talking about right now is uh, perhaps we could see an expansion uh, into Central America. Is that is that something that we could contemplate, Ben? Yeah, thanks, Duncan. I mean, I'm curious to see whether the success of this, if we can call a six to seven grade 
a success, you know, might motivate the United States to start thinking about other trade agreements. We haven't heard much so far in the Biden administration other than, you know, the potential for an agreement with the United Kingdom having left the EU. You know, Central America sort of would be a natural extension. It already has a free trade agreement with the United States. But there's also the notion of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right, which includes, you know, some key Latin American trading partners. Um, and so the broader question of is the United States going to promote free trade in the Western Hemisphere? Now, it won't be as easy at this moment than maybe it's been at other times. There's, you know, a protectionist government in Buenos Aires right now. The new government in Peru looks to be rather anti-trade. So it's a mix. And so we'll see even what the Pacific Alliance thinks of trade in the coming years. Um, you know, Mercosur probably doesn't have a big trade agenda. But, but I am curious to see whether the success of USMCA motivates the White House and Congress to think more broadly about trade, including in Latin America. You know, one one of the things that strikes me in the conversation, following on Benjamin's comments and everything that's been said before, is that um, countries in what we could consider the U.S. near abroad, Caribbean countries, Central American countries, even the northern coast of Colombia, have this aspiration that as the trade tensions between the United States and China heat up, that there will be um, a significant effort by this administration, not just to reshore U.S. manufacturing, but also to nearshore. Um, and that would be to include um, some of these other smaller countries in the supply chains that Mexico and Canada and the United States have very successfully put together through the USMCA. So I guess my question is how realistic um, is that aspiration? Latin America in general has a pretty bad record um, in establishing manufacturing supply chains within the region as a whole, with the exception um, of, of North America and, and the, the, you know, the, the agreement that the USMCA represents. So I'd, I'd really be interested in uh, in me, Ambassador Wayne or, or, or a- Andrew Rudman's um, uh, comments on on whether or not you think that's viable or is this really in the in the realm of aspiration? Tony, why don't we go to you first? OK, well, I, I think that as we see USMCA in practice, there's a, there is a possibility of expanding it. And I think the natural expansion, though, would be with the countries where we already have a free trade agreement, because they've already accepted a number of the disciplines. USMCA is a modernized version of NAFTA. It was more modern than NAFTA. Uh, it is more modern than NAFTA. And the free trade agreements that many countries in the Americas have are, are more modern also. But, you know, what we never did with those free trade agreements was actually link them together. It was a hub and spoke system. So one of the possibilities as you look forward is those countries that are willing to accept these additional modern disciplines and commitments, including in labor and the environment, you know, could sit down together and see where could we go. Uh, But it's clear that all governments in, in Latin America won't be interested in this. I think a number of them would. And I think it would be beneficial on both sides to explore if we can do that. But we do have to see if the Biden administration really is interested in taking that forward. As Ben mentioned, they've been uh, pretty clear that they have a limited trade agenda right now. Uh, They're focused domestically, uh, but maybe that could expand. And so it's certainly worth thinking about and worth seeing how USMCA unfolds over the next year or so. Tony, you, you mentioned environmental issues. Uh, Anya, I, I know, has a, an interest in this. Anya, you want to jump in here? Thanks, Duncan. 
I'm very interested in, in kind of the role that environmental issues playing in trade, right? Because we are seeing increasingly that this is one of the central issues that is under discussion, whether it's between Mercosur and the EU, um, or even in the way that President Biden is talking about, you know, trade and building back better here in the U.S. And USMCA uh, differed from NAFTA in that it did include environmental provisions, even though it didn't go as far as some critics wanted. Um, so do we see that USMCA is playing a role, um, is, is kind of encouraging the three countries that are participating to, to do better or to think about environmental concerns? Andrew, would you like to take a crack at that one? Sure, Duncan. Uh, Anya, I'd, I'd be happy to. I, you know, I, I think, it, admittedly, it's a bit of a cop-out. I, I think it's a little soon to say whether the countries are behaving differently. But it certainly provided a tool that any any country or other stakeholder could use to question the actions in a way that they couldn't before. So I, I think it was really important to include environment and labor in USMCA. Those were two of the areas that were always criticized because they were outside the agreement. They weren't subject to enforcement. So I, I think the intent certainly was to create more more pressure, if you will, to to be better about the environment. But I think it's probably a little soon to say whether it's having an impact. Chris? Uh, well, sure. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting about the USMCA is that it explicitly allows for something called a border adjustment tax or border adjustment fee. And for those of the listeners who aren't familiar, if you put a car price on carbon and you maintain that as a tax in, in your system, but your imports don't pay a tax on carbon, they have an unfair advantage. And so the idea of a border adjustment tax or a border adjustment fee is that it levels the playing field so that everyone is in effect paying the price of the carbon impact that their product has. Now, the Biden administration, President Biden is an advocate of border adjustment taxes, as is uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But Canada has a nationwide carbon price, whereas in the United States, we only have 11 jurisdictions that have any carbon price at all. In the future, I think one of the challenges will be how to apply those taxes without having a protectionist impact. And USMCA says you have to not be primarily trying to restrict trade with your border adjustment fees, um, but you know, intention is hard to litigate. So I think this is one area where there's potential, but also potential for conflict as we implement USMCA. I'm so glad that you ended with conflict there, Chris, because it's an issue I wanted to come back to, because let's face it, we can talk about how well they all get on, but let's talk about where they're coming to blows a bit more. We've mentioned energy. Uh, Ambassador Wayne mentioned in his early uh, comments about the labor disputes that are there. You know, what do we what do we predict coming up in the next 12 months for USMCA? Are we looking at, uh, you know, a lot more issues being uh, brought up in the uh, ministerial meetings? Are we looking at dispute settlement mechanisms being called into play increasingly? And one of the things that uh, many of us have noted is that the, uh, the Biden administration here in the United States loves to approach these things through institutional mechanisms, and USMCA has those built in. So I'd be very interested in hearing from the panelists where they see potential points of conflict coming up. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, Duncan. I, I think, as, as, I, as I mentioned, as you know well, I think energy is, is clearly an area where there's, there's likely to be conflict. Um, one of the, the messages that I've heard, certainly for the Mexican business community, is uh, I, I guess I would say almost a, a desperate hope that the U.S. would in fact pursue some dispute settlement cases, because after all, one of the hallmarks of, of NAFTA and USMCA was to provide that certainty and sort of lock in some of Mexico's reform. So I, I think indeed there will be um, potentially conflict on on energy in particular, um, and, and potentially other 
other areas depending on the, the uh, policies that the AMLO administration implements uh, toward private investment. Um, I was just going to say what's interesting is that a lot of the traditional disputes that we've seen, whether it's softwood lumber, dairy, some of the things with the Canadians are in commodities. And commodities typically swing on price based on how much supply and demand there is in any given period. But as the economies come back out of COVID, we're seeing commodity prices strengthening. And I think that means those disputes start taking a back seat to disputes of the sort that the Biden administration um, is looking at, which relate to uh, how are the rules applied? And we have labor value content in the automotive rule of origin. We have a lot of, of details that are being worked on by the committees that Ambassador Wayne mentioned. And the devil is often in the details. So I think we're entering a phase as we come back of making sure the rules are applied clear and fairly, rather than having a dispute over some of these traditional commodities, which have driven so much trade conflict in the past. Now, that's presuming we stay on a recovery path, which I hope we do. In, sort of in that connection, um, it's likely there'll be some disputes in the agricultural area, in addition to Canadian dairy, uh, which is a good staple. Uh, but, for example, Mexico has been doing a number of things related to genetically modified products and um, that U.S. agricultural exporters are very upset about. This will no doubt be tested first through consultations and maybe through dispute settlement. We'll see going forward. Because one of the things that USMCA does is it puts a new emphasis on science-based requirements and uh, conf uh, conversations among regulators of, about how things uh, move along. So there's one area we'll look at. We also have some data issues, again, with Mexico um, looking at maybe some ways to uh, restrict some of the flows of data and, and telecoms and media companies. And so this will no doubt be a, an area of discussion and maybe dispute among the three countries going forward, just as it is within uh, the United States right now as we look forward. It's important to remember that one that in this connection, one of the key things about USMCA is it's going to give 16 years of consistent rules and consistent methods for dealing with disputes. People will try to have dialogue first, in most cases, um, and then move into these mechanisms. So we're going to see how, how this works going forward. And that was the biggest accomplishment in many ways of USMCA was giving this period of certainty as to how we're going to deal with problems going forward. And then on top of that, it has a number of neat things where they the governments can create new opportunities and can adjust the agreement to reflect the evolution in technologies and means of, of commerce going forward. I like your point, Tony. And let's not forget, you can raise a child in 16 years. So, uh, you know, we'll come back in 16 years time and see how this is developed. <laughs> Before we leave it, I know we only have a couple of seconds left, but uh, I'd love to hear in a quick sort of round robin from our panelists, whether you believe that this new agreement or now an agreement at one year old um, provides the United States with a basis to adequately take on the China challenge at the level of the global economy. Um, so why don't we begin with uh, with Cindy? Cindy, I mean, you've looked at the role of China in the Americas for many, many years. As you look at USMCA, the United States having this, uh, this guaranteed access to the markets of Mexico and, uh, and Canada and vice versa, is this uh, what gives North America the competitiveness it, uh, competitiveness it needs? 
Well, it's hard for me to answer that question in the context of North America. What's clear is that um, a a region-wide free trade agreement um, is a dream of the George W. Bush era. It never came to be. It's not likely to come to be um, for all of the reasons that people have talked about, including domestic opposition in the United States right now to additional free trade agreements. Um, So free trade in and of itself is Uh, necessary but far from sufficient in allowing the United States to compete with China, certainly in South America, but also as a region. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of the hemispheric free trade agreement certainly is not practical at the moment. But, you know, getting back to my point earlier about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I mean, Latin America actually played a pretty big role in rescuing it after the United States had negotiated it and then walked away under the last administration. And you had the Chileans, I think, actually host the signing ceremony for the remaining signatories, including Japan and other big players. So I think if the Biden administration is to move on, you know, free trade at some point beyond USMCA, I think, you know, that would be a natural way to do so. And it would be a way to start bringing a few more Latin American countries on board. And at some point, we have a, a, a summit of the Americas that we have to deal with. Anya? USMCA is, I think, a real tool for the US when it when it comes to, um, you know, the rivalry with China. But Latin America is enormous, right? Um, there, there's a number of, of big countries. Brazil is just one. Argentina who, you know, are are part of different blocks or who look towards China as their primary trade partner at the moment. So, you know, it is certainly a step, um, but the U.S. will need to do much more in terms of its engagement with the region, not just trade, but in other ways as well. Thank you. Chris Sands. Uh, It's early days in this conflict between the United States and China, but one thing that seems to be emerging is a very different approach to supply chains in which the United States and, and its allies are looking for transparency for the customer, for investors, and a very high standard of operation, both in terms of environmental impact and cost efficiency, whereas China's supply chains are very much don't ask, don't tell with forced labor and maybe other questions left unanswered. This is a challenge for Latin America and really for all of the world. Which side are you most comfortable operating in? And I think there's a real opportunity here to have data-driven and more verifiable supply chains drive trade into a higher level. And this is something that our regional neighbors should be first in line to do. But um, I think there'll always be the temptation of China, easy money, belt and road, and uh, perhaps no questions asked being a better term. So the U.S. can't expect people to come to it. It's going to have to work. But I think this is the potential that we have right now to to reshape trade and make it much more uh, positive for our values. Andrew, is this the uh, the missing component that the United States needs to take on China properly? You know, Duncan, it, it, it's obviously, as everybody has said, it's a hugely important tool. We're, we're far better off uh, doing it as North America or the Western Hemisphere than, than we would be trying to do it alone. Um, I, I think a, a similar question um, to ask is whether this is the tool for Mexico. And, and I don't know. I don't know yet in that. I, I think the AMLA administration uh, signed the USMCA, but it'll be interesting to see how committed they remain. The, the door is open for lots of opportunities to for consultations with the U.S. and collaboration. And, and, and to me, that's that's certainly the question I'm focusing on more is whether Mexico will capitalize on USMCA. And finally, Ambassador Wayne, as a, uh, a long-serving government uh, official, observer of the relationship with Mexico and Canada, how do you see this? Well, I think the USMCA gives the three governments the opportunity to address 
together in a better way all, many of the issues that account for how competitive they are vis-a-vis China. Let me just talk about workforce development, how we're going to invest in our workers, give them the skills they need, what are the best practices. That links into supply chains and how effective those supply chains are. They can deal with those things within the framework of USMCA, but it goes beyond just trade ministers. It involves many other ministers in the three governments. And that that includes the ministers that deal with how things cross the border. All of this needs to be well integrated. So it's really the, the options are there in USMCA for the three governments to work together if they do so creatively and energetically. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, let me just tell our listeners that uh, they should be on the lookout for uh, a lot of programming that's coming up celebrating or commemorating the first year anniversary of the USMCA. The uh, the Canada and Mexico Institutes have done an extraordinary job of putting together a package of events and publications uh, that will be available in the next few weeks. Um, Cindy, Anya, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, thank you so much for being here as always. Special thank you to Ambassador Tony Wayne for joining us today. We look forward to learning more from you, uh, from all of you in future episodes. Until then, from all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm Duncan Wood. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.